You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys episode number 104 for Monday the 26th of February 2018. My guest today is Rachel Amphlett, the author of the Dan Taylor espionage novels and the Detective K. Hunter series, which now numbers four novels. The fifth is out on March the 11th. In 2018, Rachel has already released three novellas in her new English spy mystery series. After the success of the Detective K. Hunter series, Rachel was able to leave her part-time job and become a full-time writer, and that gave her the perfect opportunity to go back through some writing ideas that had been fermenting for a while. This is now the third time I've spoken to Rachel on this podcast, mainly because she's created some amazing impetus in her career since we first started chatting. In this latest interview, I started by asking her when she realised that the time was right to go full-time. I didn't have a choice. I got made redundant. <laughs> and then, um, I mean, I was at that point when Scared to Death came out, I was working four days a week. And so for most of last year, that's what I was doing. I was still working around the writing. And then due to some health complications, I ended up having to work from home for most of June and July. And in the meantime, um, my boss, who is lovely, um, phoned me up and said, look, things aren't too good here um and I I volunteered then to drop to three days a week and then a week later he phoned me back again and went it's not going to work and I said well I'll tell you what I said rather than you stressing out about it I said the writing's been going pretty good for the last two two months why don't I just quit and he was like there was silence at the end of the phone and he was just like you what (laughs) and I was like yeah why don't I just quit I said, I can go and be a writer full time. And it was almost as if the universe shoved me in the direction that I needed to go more than me really making that decision. It was almost like the decision was taken out of my hands. And, you know, you know what I'm like, I've got my business and marketing plan. And within that, I've got my three year, five year and 10 year goals. And being a full time writer at that time last year was still a three year goal. And then suddenly there I was being a full time writer. So, um, it felt incredibly liberating. This is where you were last time we spoke. So you, you weren't redundant last time we spoke, but you had just agreed, I think, to do that part-time working. So uh, I'd seen yeah. that. Yeah, and, I mean, that that's fantastic. So um, I, I think many people will be sort of poised like you were uh, to, to sort of jump and think, shall I, shall I, shall I? And yeah, then, you really feel like on the brink of something. And yeah. then it's too scary to jump yourself sometimes. And sometimes when you get a situation like that, where you just get shoved into that situation, it really is sink or swim. Um, and the one thing I would say is that I had seen a lot of writers go full time in the 12 months before I did and make the mistake then of not writing. So the one thing that I already had in my mind was that if I was going to do that, I'd better make sure that, I formed some good habits very, very quickly. And so it's why I write from about 6.30 onwards 
in the morning because that was my commuting time. So my brain remembers, it's like that muscle memory that we were talking about last time, about habit forming. My brain was already trained, you know, to sit on the train and write at that time of the morning. So I've continued that since being full time. So the first thing I did, well, walk the dog, have a coffee, get in front of the computer and do my word count for the day. That's pretty much what I was doing when I had a job. And then the rest of the day, if I've done my word count and I don't want to do any more, I don't need to do any more, I can get on with the business and marketing side. So you weren't quite ready to go. I remember when I took voluntary redundancy, I was uh, terrified when that rug was, uh, well, I, I pulled it from underneath me in many respects, but when it came <laughs> from underneath me, it was quite terrifying. It was that feeling of elation and freedom and all that space to expand into, but also that mm. terror that the money was no longer coming in at the end of every month. Did yeah, you feel that? I mean, yeah, definitely. Um, because up to a point, I'd been the major breadwinner um, for about a year and a bit. And we had just put the house on the market. Um, but, we, you know, we were still paying a mortgage and everything like that. And the reality didn't really hit me until I came back from Canada for, from VoucherCon. And then had to launch How to Pay. And How to Pay was the first book that I'd ever launched without the safety net of a job behind me. And that was the most stressful launch simply because if it failed, I didn't know what I was going to do because I'd effectively made myself unemployable. There was no way I was going to go back into an office. So um, once I got How to Pay out of the way, um, I really felt like I found my feet then so from the beginning of December onwards I felt a lot more confident in my publishing business I cannot believe your level of productivity so I, I've been aware of you writing uh, Detective K Hunter I think you were just starting to release that or you, you I think made... it was just before launch wasn't it when yeah. we first caught up yeah I think so I think so and here you are you've got four I think you're writing six at the moment aren't you yeah, yeah, it's um, in front of me here. I was doing a heap of research yesterday, so I've got I've got a, um, an A3 photocopy of an ordnance survey map of Maidstone and Tunbridge Wells here, highlighted up with all the kill zones and stuff like that. My desk looks quite weird at the moment. I love the way you post that on social media. I see these kill maps and kill zones yeah. on social media. <laughs> I just think, hey, sharing is caring. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. But uh, interestingly, though, you see, you use a an old fashioned map and a fluorescent pen. Uh, yeah. do, do you also go onto Google Maps and have a look at it? Have a good look round as do. well. And I use I use Google Earth and stuff. But I've been a sucker for maps since I was a kid. My dad used to have a whole swathe of them. Um, on the bookshelf at home because he was a leading ambulance officer. And back then in like, you know, when I was little, it was like the late seventies, early eighties sort of thing. But a lot of the farms and stuff that were way out in the sticks that he might have to get to with the ambulances, that was the only way of finding them was ordnance survey maps and things like that. So, you know, I was taught to read maps at a very early age. Um, and I just love it. I've got um, all four ordnance survey maps for Kent on my desk here. And I just love pouring over them. So for me, that's just a bit of a hobby as well. But it is good to take a copy of one, mark it up with highlighter pens and just think about scene setting and stuff like that. And then if I want to get, you know, it's 12 years since I lived in Kay Hunter's stomping ground. You know, if I want to get a sense of a real sense of place, then, yeah, Google Earth is my friend. Plus, going back, um, we're going back in May to catch up with family and friends. 
And I've already decided that I'm going to cut some videos while I'm in Kent. I'm going to take my readers from around the world into, Kate, into Kay's um, world um, in Maidstone and just like say, well, you know, here's the bench on the river where she has a coffee and that sort of thing. Because I just think it'll be fun. That's that's lovely stuff for readers. And by the way, I just I think I've probably told you this before, but in Maidstone, you are 25 miles away from where I was born in Ham Street. So, um, oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> can we have a body there at some point, please? Can you just? Well, make I'm me... sure we can. <laughs> Let me just make a note of that. It's hilarious because it's um, I get when I put that map on. Um, when I put their map up on their Instagram, there were people going, yeah, Paddock Woods for the kill. And I was voting for where they lived, where they want the body to turn up. It's like, they're worse than me. <laughs> it's great fun. Yeah, I was at Ham Street. I'm just trying to think. We were, we were, I was born. So I was born uh, opposite fields in Ham Street. Um, just my mum says, I always remember the, sh- the sort of the lambs because I was born in March. So we were, it's yeah. quite rural Ham Street, isn't it? Even though it's near Ashford, which is where the, the uh, yeah, tunnel is. Absolutely. The- that's it. And, it. and that's the beautiful thing about Kent. There are so many out-of-the-way places. There are so many old traditions associated with Kent that I'm learning more about. You know, I lived there for five years. Um, I'm from Berkshire originally. But um, I learned so much while I was living there, but I'm learning so more doing my research. And I, I love my history and stuff like that. Um, and if I find out something interesting, it gets thrown into a newsletter and I'll share it with readers as well. And it's amazing you know, with the newsletters, how many responses I get from people who either still live in that area or who grew up there that just say, oh, I remember that. And I remember, did you know this and all the rest of it? And, you know, all that goes into the melting pot. Well, I was born on Romney Road. I've just looked it up on the map. And that's near Romney Marsh, which is a great place to leave a body, surely. It is, but it's east of Kent Police, you know, <laughs> and Kay's in West, but uh, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You've got to have a little pitch while you've got an author on, haven't you? So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Please, can you kill someone where I grew up? <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, so uh, I, have, I mean, I haven't lived there for years, but it's where I started school. But uh, so there you go. Anyway, that's uh, and, and how's Maidstone then as a, as a as a location? Because does it give you enough scope? It's not. It's, it's a town, isn't it? It's not a city, Maidstone. Is that right? It's the county town of Kent, and originally when I was plotting out um, Scared to Death, I was chatting about this with my other half. He was actually born in Kent, um, and he was pitching for me to, to base the series in Canterbury. He said, you know, because it's pretty, you'll attract more readers, but I don't know Canterbury as well as I know Maidstone, and Maidstone's got so many interesting places and interesting characters and because I had that edge that I knew it really well and I know the suburbs and, you know, where Kay lives with her other half, Adam, where they buy their, you know, where they buy their Indian takeaway from is exactly where we used to get our Indian takeaway from. It's like the little things like that that I think really enable people to soak up the stories. And so that's, that's why Maidstone was top choice. Let's talk about location. I've I've got really interested in location since I've been writing. I, I love uh, going on places. We went on the Caledonian Sleeper this year, and I love integrating, um, you know, like you, real life experiences because you can get really get inside it, can't you? When when you've ta- got a takeaway yeah. from that that restaurant, you can really get inside the smells. I and know. The funny bits and I know. Things. I miss. I really miss the vegetable biryanis. <laughs> 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 That's brilliant, but but you, lo- but you but you get that thrill, do you, of using locations that you that you know really well? Yeah, I do, and it makes me 
I think there's, and I can't remember who said it, that location is really a character in itself. And that's the, that's the way I view it. Um, when we were out in Canada, traveling between Vancouver and Vancouver Island, um, I was doing a writing seminar there. And the Assassin series was out with beta readers while we were traveling. I think I hit the send button to them the day before we got on the plane out to Canada. And while we were on the ferry traveling over, I was able to go down to where the lorries were all parked up to see how they really wedge those vehicles into um, transport ferries. And that, for me, added more atmosphere. So there's a scene in the Assassin series where they, they do take it, they, you know, they nick a truck and put it on a, a cross-channel ferry. But to see how those trucks were packed in and just top up my knowledge to make sure that I got things right. It's things like that that you can only do um, away from the computer. You, you know, you have to get out there and see it. Or, or like you say, you, you are in a place and you soak up that atmosphere and you keep some notes and you take some photographs because you never know when you might need it for a story. Yeah, and I think what you're doing when you visit the UK this year, uh, doing the videos and the photos, you know, I think that if when you get into a story, you really can't get enough of that kind of, it's like DVD extras, really, for writers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, that's what kind of inspired the the, the whole model of the Assassin series was was Netflix and the way that people do have a shorter attention span. But on the flip side, they want to turn that story inside out. They want to know everything there is about it. Um, and there'll be more and more of that coming on board this year with the K Hunter series. It won't just be the videos. There'll be other things I'm going to be doing. It's quite exciting as well. Um, but just to really let readers get into that world as much as they like. Now, I need to have a word with you about this level of productivity because, uh, I, I mean, it's like I've been following the K-Hunters and thinking, blimey, she's really going some there. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this Assassin <laughs> series comes out. And then when I'm doing the research, I, th- I thought there was just one because, you know, I, I follow you on social media and things. And then I find mm. there are three, for goodness sake, released in 2018. <laughs> now, come on, give the rest of us a fighting chance, will you? <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, that was one of those things that was kicking around at my desk. And when I lost my job, I thought, I really want to get that off my desk because I like the story. So I just knuckled down but that was hard work because I finished I finished Hell to Pay um when did that that came out in November that was actually a month behind that should have been out at the beginning of October um but just like I said because of health reasons I was a month behind so Hell to Pay was finished pretty much by the time I I I got made redundant so I needed a palette cleanse because I'd written so many K Hunter books in, in a in a row um the Assassin series was sat there kicking around and I thought, I'm going to finish that because there's something about that character I really like. And there's another character in it, um, one of the team that I really found quite interesting. And so, yeah, I just got my nose to the grindstone um, and finished that, like I said, the day before I got on the flight to Canada for BoucherCon. Um, and by the time I got back, it was we had a midnight flight back from Vancouver to Brisbane after the Canadian trip, and by the time we, we our flight was called, I had the first 10,000 words down for quarter arms. Wow, that's that's phenomenal. The, you know, the only saving grace about those is that they're novellas, aren't they, I think? But- yeah, those ones are. They If it didn't work, um, it wouldn't have worked as one big block of a, a book. It was too long. 
but I didn't want to cut anything out because I was having I was having too much fun blowing stuff up again. You know, everyone's, <laughs> there's a lot of my American readers that just are blown away that um, Kay Hunter just can't go up to a bad guy and shoot him. <laughs> you know, she's got to follow procedure. So I thought, okay, let's let's have some fun with Eva and the team. Um, and the whole novella thing was a case of the reason that I released it a week one week after the other was again on that Netflix model. I wanted to draw people into a new concept of books that was episodic in delivery, that it does end on a cliffhanger. And I warn them in the product description, you know, if this is episodic, this is going to continue. And before I released it, because I was having kittens about it, thinking I'm going to get slayed, um, just before Christmas, I put out a questionnaire to my launch team, and or the launch team for my spy novels, rather, and posed to them four very um, honed-in questions and basically said, you know, do you think this will work? Would you be happy to pay this? Blah, blah, blah. And they all came back so positively that gave me the confidence to press the button on it. Wow. I want to talk to you about Bouchercon, which you just mentioned a moment or two ago. And I mean, mm. I've never heard of it, but I've been looking it up online too now. Um, t- tell me about this, because I, I, I've never heard of it. So uh, what, why, what would make you fly all that distance to, to Bouchercon? Because that's a long way and a lot of expense. It is, and it was totally worth it um, from my point of view. Um, I went because it was in Toronto, and I love Canada. Um, that was second in line to Australia for emigrating to for us. Um, such a friendly place. And when I saw BoucherCon was going to be there and it's, it's reader centric. You go there as a reader. Um, there are so there are, I think someone's on the, on the organizing committee said that there were more readers staying in that hotel than authors. So although you see a lot of your writing heroes milling about, um, the majority of people there are, of you know crime fiction fans and the panels are very well attended um there's peripheral activities for readers and writers as well you can do day trips and stuff stuff like that out with people um for me it was about i i have a goal this year of cracking north america big time canada was always a big audience for me with kobo um and continues to be um, so that again tied in nicely with Toronto because I was able to go and, and chat with Mark and the team at, at um, Kobo while I was over there. When I got when I actually registered for it, I didn't have any panels or anything. But once I got my registration sorted out, I pitched for panels as well and was very lucky to be offered two. So suddenly the whole trip became, oh my gosh, I can go and listen to some of my favourite crime writers and learn from them, which I always do. I always take copious notes. But I'm also going to be on panels and get the opportunity to meet some new readers. And it was just phenomenal. The atmosphere there is, it reminded me atmosphere-wise of Crime Fest at Bristol. There was no, you know, there was, everyone was on the same level. There was no snobbery. You could walk up to anybody in the foyer, shake their hand, introduce yourself, um, whether they were a reader, a writer, you know, running a, a, a mystery group or a book club or something like that. And, of course, everybody was there at breakfast, there in the bars, and you could just catch up and have, you know, meetings and and whatnot on the side as well. And so many opportunities came out of it from a networking point of view. Um, 
that I would definitely go back. The good thing is about BoucherCon as well, and I don't know if you picked this up when you looked on their website, but they change city every year. They change location around North America. So I think this year it might be in Florida. I think next year it could be in Fort Worth or, or Dallas. Um, and then the following year, I think they've got Syracuse, California on the list. But, be, you know, it takes so much organizing. They are organizing it and booking hotels out three years in advance. So on the BoucherCon site, it's got uh, a list of uh, attendees and then a list of authors. So mm-hmm. it, it, you, you mentioned the panels there and having to bid to be on a panel. Do, do they then like have the kind of the superstars and then the panels are made up of, of bidding authors? Is that how it all works? I don't know, but I ended up on panels with Joseph Finder and Shari Lapina. So it seems to be they just want, if, you've, if, you are, if you have written on that subject matter, you're in. And it doesn't matter if you're self-published? No. <laughs> That's what I mean. There's no snobbery there. It's such a, it's such a, a, an open field for everybody. It's just about the writing and, you know, it's about the stories. Because, you know, you've let yourself in. You might have let yourself in for a Paul rant, actually, on, on this. This is not about you. Because um, I was mm. looking at Crime Fest, too, because I know you're coming yeah, over for Crime Fest. Yeah, I did it 18 months ago, but I was relegated to the indie panel. And I... I know what you're going to say. I, I registered for them because I'm coming over for it this year. I'm coming and I got down email. to see you. I'm coming down to see hey, you. I, I, yeah. Excellent. Um, I got an email from them three weeks after I registered saying, well, you're not on the panel. Do you want us to cancel your registration? I went, no, I'm not coming to be on one of your panels. I'm coming to catch up with book bloggers and readers and writing friends. So don't you dare cancel my registration. And it's just like, how dare you? <laughs> it's like people really need to stop having that attitude about indie publishing. But there you go. I'm hugely insulted by it because um, I can't remember what the wording was when, when you apply for it. But it's something like, you know, don't, indies don't bother us effectively. And, and I also want uh, to know. Yeah, it's like if you're, if you're, if you're not published by a um, publisher, traditional publisher in the English language or something like that. Yeah, how dare you. So it, that, it's like, oh, I, I, you know, I don't care. I'll be at the bar. <laughs> it's a good job you said you were going to give me that little, you know, little push to sort of see somebody down there because um, yeah, I just it's, thought, it's mm, yeah. The, the first time I was there, I was like a deer in headlights. I've got a few panels and workshops under my belt since then, but it was for me being my first crime fiction festival I ever went to. I went a bit fangirly, to be quite honest. There were so many people that I knew. It was just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> and now it's just like, I, I hope I'll be a bit more laid back. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other thing I want to ask you about uh, the crime fest is uh, how have you got – you see, we're all we're both in delegates, right, but you've got a web link on yours. How did you get a web link on yours? And I didn't get one on mine. Do you know? I don't know. I put my website on when I registered. Maybe it's – I don't know. Give them a nudge. They must have heard about the books, wasn't they? They thought, oh, we better not link those. <laughs> <laughs> I just write and ask them. I mean, that's, that's something every author has to do, and I think this comes from traditional, traditionally published authors as well as indies, is if you see something where you could, where it's not right, like that, and it needs to be fixed, you know, don't be shy in coming forward. I think you've got to put yourself out there. Well, I've only just noticed it, so I am going to be on it because I want a link there on you that. Go. No, yeah. Note to self. <laughs> oh no, I'm not settling for it. So, <laughs> but uh, so, but I, I'll see. I'll see you there anyway, which is which is great. great. Do you bid for panels for that? Then do you need to put yourself about a bit, you know, to get a panel? Um, well, the only panel open is to people like you and me, us weirdos. Um, is the indie 
um, one. And you, you do need to pitch that at the time that you register because obviously I would imagine there's quite a few people pitching for that. But it was, you know, it's a good session. It was it was really interesting listening to other indies' experiences and their plans. Um, and we had really good um, engagement from the audience as well, some great questions about it. Well, come on, guys. Uh, you know, we, we need to be a bit more friendly to indies. But I have seen, actually, in the list here, I've seen uh, JF Penn, which is Joanna Penn. She She's there as participating authors. And, and so is David Penny. And they're both... Been on, well, they've both been on this show. They've both been on as self-published authors as well. So, yeah, I think we'll slowly wear them down. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I need to move up in the world a little bit, don't I? So, uh, anyhow, we'll get there eventually. No, no, no. We just, we just need to bring them down to our level. <laughs> <laughs> I'll settle for a web link. You've got a web link. You're posh, you are. <laughs> so um terrible interview technique there Rachel because I hopped from uh, one subject to another I was talking to you about conferences and I hadn't finished with your assassin series yet um, <laughs> I, w- I wanted to, to delve a little bit into how long a novella is for people who don't understand the difference between novels and novellas so can you talk me through you know what's a reasonable length f- for a book like that oh crumbs I don't know from my experience what what I did I mean, each of those is a shade under 35,000 words. Um, but I've seen novellas be marketed for like 10,000 words. What I did when I decided that was going to be the way, the publishing model that I was going to use for that series, I spoke to some authors whose publishers in the past had got them to serialize work or that had um, published novellas um with cliffhangers in the past and what i made sure i did was go through all the bad reviews on amazon for those serialized works and pick out everything the readers didn't like about it so either that they had to wait too long that it was too you know i think there was a few on there that i saw that people were being charged for you know it's half the length of one of mine and they were still being charged the same price um, it was things like that that I went out of my way to avoid doing, to give the series the best chance possible. And I think doing that homework paid off. I know that readers don't particularly like cliffhangers. And now I, I, I'm interested to hear that you said that you, you warn them about the cliffhangers. That's actually the technique that I use to t- you know, tell them there's a cliffhanger, but they still miss oh, yeah. it sometimes. Oh yeah, there's always the one person that buys it without reading the product description. I've, but I, I think I, I sat down because you know I'm a nerd. You know what I'm like, my business plans and stuff. I sat down over the weekend and I've done an eight-page um, review report of the launch, so I know exactly what worked, what didn't work, what it cost me, what the profit was, and all the rest of it. I've just broken it down completely, um, like you would do a lessons learned with a you know, an engineering project or something. Um, out of all the, you know, I was really waiting for the <laughs> for the, the the real clangor reviews. And now I've said it, I'll probably get some. Um, but I had, I think, out of the entire launch for January, I had two stinky emails from people on the readers group, <laughs> um, and two reviews. I think I've got a three-star on either Amazon.com or .co.uk that said, oh, this is a really unattractive publishing model. And it was just like, nah, I don't care. Everyone else liked it. I had fun writing it. And a lot of people have said, 
will you do it again? And it's a case of, yeah, I'd love to. If people are up for it, <laughs> if I have time, um, given that I've got another 2K Hunter books to get out this year, I would love for it to become a yearly thing where every, you know, after Christmas, everyone knows that for the three sun, the first three Sundays in January, they're going to get a new assassin story because there's something about those characters that I really enjoy, but it's, I'd forgotten how much extra research goes into writing spy novels. Cause it's been a while since I wrote a Dan Taylor one. So it's a real, that one's a real planning exercise. If I do it again. How do you feel about Dan Taylor now? I miss him. I need partly at the part of the strategy with the assassins launch was that at the end of the last book, I gave them, I pulled down an unpublished, the legacy device, which was the short story prequel. I pulled that down off all the retailers about four months ago because I knew that I was going to um, offer that to new subscribers of the assassins launch. There's a lot of people that didn't know. And there's, there's a review on amazon.com where so this lady he says, for her first foray into espionage fiction, Rachel's done quite well. I'm thinking, this isn't my first foray, love. <laughs> this is where I started. <laughs> I'll you. So, I think, I think, but it showed that I was right. People didn't know about me. And that was the biggest problem I had with the Dan Taylor series was the lack of visibility. And I put everything I learned into that, into obviously launching the K Hunter series and stuff. So when people get to the end of the Assassin series, I'm giving away the short story legacy device prequel into the Dan Taylor series. And I did that on purpose as as a strategic thing to try and get more visibility on that series. And it seems to be working. I've noticed an uptick in the sales of the Dan Taylor series, which is phenomenal. You do so much, uh, you know, paperwork around your launches and things. You Mm -hmm. You must have created a pie chart to show which of the series you're selling more books of, which, how does it slice up? Uh, K Hunter is the breadwinner at the moment. Um, and I don't actually do a um, pie chart. I've got the book tracker app, which I'd recommend to anyone that's gone wide and uh, as opposed to locking into KDP select. So if you're with iBooks, Kobo, Drafted Digital, Google Play, as well as, you know, Amazon, then go, go get book tracker because it will just save you pulling all the different Excel sheets out. It does it for you and puts it in really nice graphs. But yeah, so K Hunter is obviously the, the breadwinner um the standalone's not so much look closer does quite well because i think people that like the k hunter series like that particular standalone um the assassin series is still leading the dan taylor series at the moment but then i would expect it to because it's still quite fresh you cut your teeth on Dan Taylor, though, didn't you? So uh, you know that's yeah, when you learned your craft, I guess. Yeah, I writes on Dan Taylor. So I want to get back into writing that series because I've already got the Italian and German um, foreign rights on that. And the German publisher actually released the cover reveal uh, last month. It looks phenomenal. Um, that, that, so the, white, the German version of White Gold comes out on the 30th of June this year. Now, I saw this. I think this is new since we last spoke. And I saw that there were mm-hmm. difficult... Italian and German words for me to pronounce, so I thought I'd let, <laughs> I thought I'd let you do that a bit. So t- tell me about the uh, the rights. This is new, isn't it, or recent? Well, no, I um, the Italian rights they approached me back in 2014, um, and I sold the rights for White Gold to Fanucci Editori back then. Um, then, beginning of last year, I pitched White Gold to Lucifer Verlag 
in Germany. And within five days, they came back and went, love it. Give us the whole series. Wow. So I've got four Dan Taylor books coming out in Germany with Lucifer Verlag starting on the 30th of June. And I'm hopeful that, you know, I've heard from other authors that often there's those kinds of thrillers, spy, espionage thrillers actually do better in Germany than in the English language. And if that's the case, then I'll write for the German market. Wow, fantastic. That's, that's amazing. But does that, does that mean you're traditionally published, though? Yeah, in, in Germany and Italy, yeah, that's, that's how I got my Crime Writers Association um, mem- full membership because they recognise that I'm traditionally published, even if it's in a different market, unlike Crimefest. Well, that's another rant of mine, yeah, because they... <laughs> <laughs> it's really annoying, isn't it? Uh, you get there. You just keep kicking doors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've told people before I'm a disruptor. Well, you've been through all of this and you've been at it a lot longer than I have. How long have you been writing now, actually? Because you've got so many books now. Please please give us some consolation that, you know, yeah, that you've been so doing it for years. Context. Um, I indie published, I, I wrote White Gold over the course of 2010. Then I shopped it around to publishers and agents over the beginning of 2011. Um, it came out as an ebook self-published at, towards the end of 2011, and the paperback of that came out in 2012. So I've been publishing. This has been my seventh year publishing. Wow. Okay. I don't do maths. I do words. So <laughs> if I've got it wrong, sorry. But, yeah. But it, it doesn't feel that long. I mean, I, you know, I wrote for my – it's like I said before. I wrote for myself when I started out. I had none of this marketing savvy, which is why the books originally didn't go anywhere. It wasn't until 2014 when, out of the blue, the Italian publishers emailed me because the publisher loved Robert Ludlam and really enjoyed reading White Gold, and they pitched to me. And I think I said it in our it might have been one of in one of our previous podcasts that that made me sit up and take notice. In that, if they could find me by accident, what would happen if I applied myself to the business and marketing side of publishing a bit better? Um, and that's when I overhauled everything. So at the beginning of 2015, I was ready to rock. And I haven't looked back. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing lineup of books there. So we must take a moment to congratulate you on your excellent uh, output and, and the results. And by the way, I predicted in the first podcast interview that you were going places and look at what's happened since Kate Hunter. Yeah, I got goosebumps. Yeah, you're right. You did. Now, you gave me goosebumps then with that. I mean, I, I, I just sit here and I know that I'm the luckiest girl in the world at the moment. I'm sat here. In my office, at home, I, I can't see the desk. It's covered in stuff, all to do with my, my writing business. And it's, it's perfect. I wouldn't be anywhere else right now. Yeah, but you did the work, Rachel. And, and actually, you know... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of graph behind the scenes. I, yeah, and it's um, a lot of things I've missed out on timing-wise, you know, um, that I'm trying to um, make up for, shall we say. I mean, now, on a working day... I try to make sure that my computer is switched off at five o'clock. Yeah, well, that there is, you know, there's, there's family time. That's why I walk the dog before I start at six thirty in the morning. I'm still pulling in the hours, um, but I do have an off switch that I apply on at five o'clock now. Yeah, that, and that's nice. And I think you you sort of deserve that in, in, in many respects. You know, you do deserve yeah, it doesn't that. Happen, it doesn't happen on launch weeks, but. The rest of the time it helps, and it's nice being able to work Monday to Friday doing this. I still write at weekends, but I'm not spending all day Saturday and Sunday doing the business and marketing like I used to do around a job. 
You, you mentioned walking the dog a few moments ago. I want to talk to you about Floyd because uh, Floyd has, <laughs> well, Floyd has quite an important part. I, first of all, Floyd just looks so cool in your photographs. Oh, he's uh, just hilarious. He's such a muppet. <laughs> such a great dog. So, what, what, uh, I know somebody else was asking on Facebook what uh, breed of dog is. He's a he's a Saluki, oh. which is like a Persian greyhound. So, if you imagine a, a greyhound with fluffy corners, as Nick describes in the other half, um, that's that's what Floyd is. Um, very, they're very cat-like in personality. They're not rowdy like most dogs are. Um, and they can be quite aloof, which just cracks me up because there's just some looks he gives us. This just, just has me rolling around on the floor. Really does. So yeah, he's, um, he's a big part of the writing life. You know, it's, um, he's always around when I'm, when I'm writing and stuff, you know, he's my excuse to get out and get some fresh air in between being cooped up at the desk and, yeah, he's a bit of a clown, so I always share him on social media and stuff. There's an important, I think, message for uh, authors in there, though, that this um, showing people your life and having a, a dog or a cat, you know, a personality uh, to add to that as well, uh, just helps to relate really well with readers. You get a lot of comments about Floyd. Yeah, and it's something that I started doing as well, especially on Instagram, is that I put videos up from our dog walks. You know, there's a gorgeous park around the corner from here with a waterfall running through it. And, it, you know, it's different trees than other people around the world see. And I, I've started sharing that. I mean, I still I still guard my privacy very much. I need to – there is a, there is a, a line that I draw. Um, but I do think it's important to, for people to see that – yeah, I'm human. I'm the same as everybody else. I just happen to write for my job. I've put a video of Floyd on the show notes for this interview. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. there's one on Instagram of him <laughs> walking along, exploring his new digs. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that that's going on the show notes if you want to check out Floyd, because he really is very cool. Um, I, I did notice, well, I, it seems to ha- always happen with you, Rachel, that I'm, I'm seeing things of people interviewing you on blogs and things like that. And I I must have done this a couple of weeks ago. I was reading an article about you that said, and I didn't know this, that you'd been a James Bond film extra. And I thought, right, yeah. that, that's going in my prep notes. I want to hear that story because <laughs> you haven't told me that one yet. Well, but, uh, until I did that, I didn't realise how short Judy Dench really is, bless her. Really? Right, <laughs> oh, having, having said that, I'm six foot tall, so it's, I'm probably not the best, um, <laughs> the best judge of that. But, um, yeah, I got into film extra work when I was um, – working up in Oxfordshire and playing in bands and stuff. One of my mates was doing it. And I've always been one of those people that loves the behind-the-scenes documentaries about films. One of the first ones I ever watched was Raiders of the Lost Ark because that's my favourite film ever. And um, so when I found out my mate was doing film extra work, I was like, oh, can you get me into that? And, yeah, I I signed up with a few agents and got bits and pieces here and there. Um, And out of the blue, we got a phone call, you know, could we get up to this stately home in Oxfordshire stupid o'clock in the morning when it was still dark and it was freezing cold in March. And um, it was for the world is not enough. And it was the funeral scene at the beginning of the, at the beginning of the film. Um, and it was just amazing to see all the flash cars there and see what happens behind the scenes and seeing why those films cost so much to make. And the confidentiality agreements that you have to sign. Mm. I mean, if anyone found a camera in your bag, you were kicked off. There was no coming back. Your agent would disown you. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was such an insight into th- how things like that are made. I love it. And what were you, a funeral attendee? Yeah, yeah. How did the clothes work? Do they, do you, do they say, like, turn up dressed in black and looking sad? That's it, yeah. 
<laughs> wow. I didn't see you. Um, I, I think I can spot myself in it, but trust me, I'm a blur. <laughs> like, like, yeah. At the end of the day, the way I always sum it up to people is if you, yes, being a film extra sounds really glamorous. At the end of the day, though, you are just moving scenery. And they pay you, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. of course. I don't work for free anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's, what is it, a day out, a couple of days out? How does it work? That was a day out, yeah. Um, it's usually get there, like I said, it's stupid o'clock. But it's, it's great because when you're working for an agent as well, you often see people from around the country that are with the same agent, but you end up turning up on the same film sets and stuff like that. We did, um, when I first met Nick, it was always very hard for me at six foot tall to get into period drama because they just don't like tall people in period drama sort of thing. And because Nick's six foot four, I had a phone call from an agent who said, oh, you know, there's this American lot that have teamed up with the BBC. They're making Victoria and Albert. And it was the one with Peter Euston off in. And so because Nick was six foot four, I could drag him along. We both got in it. And Nick ended up being footman to the king, played by Peter Ustinov, for his first ever film extra job. And I've never been allowed to forget it. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's a great claim to fame. Yeah. I mean, it beats stamp collecting for a hobby. You know, <laughs> I, I'd recommend it to anybody. I mean, you do have to behave yourself. You can't go fangirling over everybody. You're there to do a job. Um, and people are under a lot of pressure. It's like we've, we've done EastEnders and stuff like that as well in the past. But... It's just, I do it because I just find it so fascinating to watch what goes on behind the scenes. Never been tempted to be the star? No, it's the same with playing bands. I was always happier hiding behind a guitar rather than being the singer. And you have actually done a little bit of sort of filmmaking yourself in that you've got video trailers for your books. I noticed that they seem to have grown in number um, since we last spoke. Are you, are you doing anything special to put those together these days? Not really, no. Um, I use a video-making package called Filmora, and it's basically idiot-proof, which is what I need. Um, and I've been cutting my – I kicked off a YouTube channel just before Christmas where I'm doing a monthly author Q&A for readers as well. Um, and I, I, I'm strategizing to grow that outwards too. But I use the Filmora software for all of it, and I've just got my digital SLR camera – I, I paid out for a decent on-camera microphone for it and a tripod, and that's it. Wow, that's amazing. And 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 so we're going really multimedia too because I noticed that uh, Hell to Pay has been on the front page of Audible's Police Procedural page. I know, page. blew me away. I, I did not expect that. I don't know why that happened. I'm not complaining, but that, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I think my jaw hit the desk when I saw that. Are your books strictly, are they police procedurals? Do you go into the real nitty-gritty of it? I do without boring people. At mm. the end of the day, they're crime thrillers. But something that I learned from Peter James, and I was reading all his interviews, and I interviewed him as well on my blog about 18 months ago, was that you've got to get the nuts and bolts right. And so I work very closely with um, a retired detective constable from Kent Police. I work with a serving um, police sergeant with Thames Valley Police and I've also got on hand a detective constable out of Nottingham, Nottinghamshire Police uh, who uh, who I can engage as a consultant to check specific facts as well so but I do it in such a way that I don't want you know I've had I'm very lucky in that I've had a few people serving in the police at the moment who have read the books you know bought them as readers and then emailed me and gone well done you got it um 
in as much as I do bend the rules a bit. You know, story has to come first, but the research is solid. So um, in Court at Arms, there's a few interviews in there with witnesses. And because it's a cold case, I didn't have the, the knowledge there. So I made damn sure I went to all three of my experts on that one and, and found out what their answers were and then tailored the interviewing to suit police procedure without slowing down the story. Um, I'm a stickler for getting my facts right. It's the same. It's the same with the Dan Taylor stuff. I mean, everything in the Dan Taylor stuff is is based on fact, and that's what you know. When people were reading things like Three Lives Down, what I was telling them with um, Dirty Bombs and stuff, that, that's all true. It's you know, you can read it in news reports and stuff like that, and do a little bit of research. But I think it makes the stories realistic. I know that when we spoke last time, uh, we were talking about will to live, and there's a death on a on a railway line. I think in that one, and um, I know that, mm-hmm. that that's quite a. I used to know somebody who uh, one of his jobs was to you know to go and retrieve bodies from railway lines after they've been. Um, yeah, death. I spoke to someone that did that. I spoke to someone that did that as part of my research, as well as speaking to coroners that had dealt with the aftermath. Um, and I've written a, a, there's a blog post on my website called Blurred Lines, you know, the, what, what the difference is between fact and fiction. And I wrote it about my experience writing Will to Live because after I'd done all the research and had been told all this stuff, I went into a very dark place for a couple of weeks. I, I actually got very depressed because I was researching suicides on railways i was research you know listening to people tell me stories about how they had to clear things up like that and i know a lot more obviously that went into that book i was very careful writing that book i was very careful writing the blog post um because i didn't want to trigger anybody um but it was i needed to do it to tell the story how do you choose how to kill people in your books? You know, how 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 do you go about that? <laughs> it, I, I, the killers tell me often. That one was interesting. Um, I've got my original K Hunter notebooks here. Um, when I was planning the series back in 2016, um, the working title of Will to Live was Suicide Suicide Mile, which was the nickname for the stretch of railway track. Um, and all it is, I kid you not, it's half a page of notes in blue ink that basically says serial killer uses railways to get rid of his victims because no one's ever going to believe that they've been murdered. And that's it. That was the whole concept of Will to Live, just in half a page of notes. And I, I have no idea where it comes from. It's just I can be brainstorming for another uh, another story and these ideas just pop into my head, which is why I don't watch horror films. Because I've got an overactive imagination as it is. <laughs> well, I, I, I cannot watch horror films. <laughs> one of the one of my um, favourite reviews I got on Don't Tell Meg was somebody had put this is the most I think something like this is the most original um, way I've seen of killing somebody that I've ever read, and I've been reading thrillers for years or something like that. That's why I asked you about the the ways of killing people because um, you know you have to what you have to figure it out, don't you? You have to sort of figure out. And I and I I sort of try and come up with something a little bit different, and this one really was quite different. <laughs> it's great That's fun. It, but it, it is, but I think there's also, as you know, you've got to have that credibility about it. Otherwise, it just becomes a bit of a pantomime, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know if I'll ever be able to repeat something as weird as Will to Live and a train to kill people again. But um, 
Hey, if I do, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> well, I, I, the way I got to it was I was I wanted a scene because in, in films, fight scenes are very clean. And in real mm. life, fight scenes are horrible because, you, you know, you yeah. have people, two people or however many people doing what they have to do to, oh, to you just win. have to walk, walk into your town centre when all the um, pubs empty, empty at 11 o'clock at night and watch how people fight. It's not clean. <laughs> it's horrible, isn't it? And I wanted to convey yeah. that kind of sense of two people fighting in a small space but and finding yeah. what they can to, to, to subdue each other. Um, and you'd yeah. grab whatever you could, couldn't you? Um, just whatever you could. Like the, um, I always like the scene in um, I think it's the second Jason Bourne film when he's in that assassin's house and they do exactly that, that they are fighting to the death and they are grabbing everything they can get their hands on to try and use on the other person. It's a very clever fight scene. And in real life, it would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? You know, you'd, you'd, you'd have a, you know, I've got, a, I've got a mat for my drink next to me. You, you'd just find anything hard <laughs> to thrash <laughs> with. When I, when I wrote Before Nightfall back in 2014, I've got this scene where there's a, you know, there's a fight scene in the hotel room and I've got my, my hero. He's desperate. He's throwing cushions at the guy. He's got the welcome, the welcome pack that he's lobbing at him. And someone said in the reviews, that would never happen. It's like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I think if I was getting attacked in a hotel room, I'd be lobbing everything I could get my hands on, including the welcome pack at my attacker. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's right. And I, and I just wanted to have a realistic sort of fight scene, a real horrible kind of yeah. fight scene in it. That was what. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's funny. It's funny. I mean, your, you know, again, your search history must, must be uh, crazy. <laughs> yeah. I have a, I have a VPN now. <laughs> 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 but it's part of the thriller writer's life, isn't it? That you know, and, yeah. and again, I mean, you've you've been at it longer than I have, and, and um, you know, and you can't keep doing it the same old way. So you've got to come no, up for a new twist. But don't you find often your your characters will dictate how they react in those situations anyway, don't they? I mean, you can create the situation, but often, if you know your characters well enough, they'll run with it. That's really interesting. What I say in my podcast diaries, you know, if I if I sort of think, okay, um, you know, I'm stuck here, I always just ask the question, well, what happens next? Which actually mm. is, you know, it's simple, but actually, what would happen next? You know, if somebody's coming at me with a gun, what happens next? If it was right now, what would I do? I'd yeah, find, I'd find the best to thing you can do sometimes is to, you know, I've done this with Nick when we've been, you know, we've well, I've got a fight scene. I'm going to say, stand there. I want to try something, and we just. <laughs> I, think, uh, I, I, I used to do karate. I've been banned from doing that on him. But sometimes it's interesting because it, being a female, I don't know how a bloke is going to react to a certain situation. And it's really interesting sometimes just standing there with somebody, somebody different and going, how do you react if I, you, know, you just slowly punch towards them and see what the natural reaction is of what people do? That's a really interesting, you know, that's, that's really useful as well, is to act out certain scenes. I think we need to get out more, Rachel, don't you? <laughs> it's like I clear my head. <laughs> it's terrible. I'm, I mean, I was. Where did we go? We went on a ferry, and I was thinking. Now, I was looking around for cameras to think. Could you kill somebody in one of these cabins? And would they know? You know, could you? Because I was. I'm looking for cameras, thinking. Could I kill someone in one of these cabins now? And would they know yeah. it was me? And funny. I got to tell you. Funny. Go on. No, you're right. I was. I, I was finished. But uh, it's just. It's weird. You can't even have a holiday without thinking about it. Yeah, it, it just it reminded me. I, I did a Facebook group reader take uh, readers group takeover a couple of weeks ago, and I posted this question, and I've done it on my own Facebook page for my readers, and said, right, you know, you're you're, you're at home. Um, there's a burglar comes to the window. 
the object to your left is your only weapon. What is it? And people were just listing things like the dog, the husband, um, a donut on a cake, a, a donut on a plate, a cup of coffee. And this woman put 357 Magnum. And I'm like, <laughs> you're in America, aren't you? And you're not kidding. You're not talking about ice cream, are you? <laughs> And it was like, blimey, different world. <laughs> Fantastic. I know. I mean, it's, I mean, you have to think about people having, you know, guns in drawers and things like yeah, that. They I wouldn't. know. Mm. I know. Exactly. So there you go. The, the mind of a writer, as you say. The, the other thing I find myself contorting nowadays, I'm just interested to hear your take on this, is that, um, you know, when you put people in difficult situations, nowadays you just get your phone out and, you know, ring someone or, or email them or whatever. You know, we're not, mm. you're not really remote so one of the things I, I you know I find that I have to sort of explain really is you know why wouldn't you just ring the police that uh that that scenario why wouldn't you just pick up the phone and ring someone and that you yeah. know so you have to have bad mobile phone signals you have to have um batteries that are dead which are real life experiences that we're played with just going to the local yeah. supermarket aren't we so I'm waiting I'm waiting here's a challenge for you can you get google home or um alexa into your next book because that opens up all sorts of problems well for writers. No, oh, brilliant. Well done. I've done it. It's in a, it's in a sci-fi book. So I've written sci-fi. I've just had a, a like you a cl- palate cleanser, and I thought that's yeah. that's going in. This idea that these devices listen, um, you know, all the time, and he's got the yeah. voice. He's got. I won't the, have one. He has the synthesized voice of his dead wife in it too, and he calls. So it's his wife's. Um, you know, vo- voice in there. So he talks to his wife all the time, tells her all his all his secrets. But his wife's dead. Oh wow! And uh, but yeah, I thought I'd got to get Alexa in there because this is just so. This is actually a line. I'm really geeky, but this is my line in the sand. Is Alexa? I won't. Um, I'm not ready no. for that yet. No, same here. Um, I know someone's got Google Home, and I won't have it. They are so easily hackable. It's like Fitbits. I don't want anything like that around me. I don't even have the location um, set on my phone. But no, that's right. And, and I think, do you think, though, it's because we write this stuff that we're more on the back foot about it because our imaginations just go haywire? Well, I was talking to a mate. I met up with a mate the other night. I was at a writer's conference and I said to him, do you know what? I got my idea for Dead of Night from you on Facebook because he's a cyclist. And on Facebook, you can see his route. And I said to you, you know, if I was going to kill you, yeah. I said, I know where you go. And, I, you know, I could I could figure it out. And I said, and that's what Dead of Night's uh, sort of based on, is that they've been for a run. And their trackers are showing, you know, the trackers are just there on Facebook showing where they've been and yeah. where they are. And, um, exactly. And it just, it's all there, isn't it, in real life, right in front of you. Yeah. People putting their Fitbit counts on Twitter and stuff. It's so easy to, to trace someone. And I don't think people, I don't think people realise how, how vulnerable they make themselves. Yeah, but I mean, it gives you some great opportunities, though. For, for oh thrillers. yeah, great. <laughs> which is great. Um, no, okay, so we 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 need to we uh, we nearly done an hour, and this is a bit like being a film extra. I've got you up in Australia at a ridiculous time of morning to do it, so we're re- recreating <laughs> that film extra experience for you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. It's a pleasure. It's my pleasure. It's my gift to you. Uh, so um, we're we've we've had a cover reveal for. Um, K Hunter's fifth investigation, Call to Arms. Um, is that the yep. that's the eleventh of March one, isn't it? Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's very exciting. Is it all done and ready to go? Almost. Yep. Yep. I'm just concentrating on writing the next one now. So I've got February off. <laughs> I'm just writing. <laughs> oh wow! And, and how how long are these books? Because they're 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 pretty substantial, aren't they? These aren't novellas, are they? Now. No, they're about sixty-five to seventy. I find that's that way. People get three books out of me a year. Um, and I any longer than that, I'm waffling, and I, I'm not a waffly sort of writer. I just want to get on with it. Yeah, 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 brilliant, excellent. And then um, we're going to see you in the UK at Crime yep, Fest Crime in Fest May. In May. Yep. And then I'll be um, 
in Kent in June, and I will be doing some events in Kent. I've already got one in the diary. I'm just waiting for um, details to be firmed up. So uh, I'd recommend people join the readers group via my website um, to stay in touch with the newsletters because I'll put be putting all the, the tour dates in there, as it were. You've, you've done brilliantly. I do, I do want to congratulate you and just take a moment to sort of mark – I mean, I, I – you and I have only known each other for a short amount of time and just look at how far you've come since that first interview. But the, the big thing is, is you've gone full time and you've come up with a series that's sustaining that. So congratulations on that. It's blooming brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I, I don't take it lightly either. I know I'm very lucky um, to be in the situation that I am. So interview four on this podcast. All right. We, <laughs> I, I want you to be a bestseller by then with a film deal. Is that right? Can you... So, so yeah, no pressure. Yeah, all, all right. Leave that with me. <laughs> <laughs> Just give any, us... any TV, any film rights and TV rights agents listening, you know where you know who to contact. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. And if you can manage that within the next six months a year, that'll be just about right for my schedule. If that's okay. Well, I do like a challenge. So, okay, challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week. <laughs>